Welcome to the QAV Investing Podcast. My name's Cameron. I'm your co-host with my friend Tony Kyniston. And we teach Tony's system of investing QAV on this podcast. QAV stands for quality at value. If you're brand new, welcome. Tony's been a mate of mine for 15 or so years and he's a very successful investor. Our portfolio tends to double the market. So that's what we teach on this podcast is how Tony does that. The sort of things that we look at in companies that we invest in. This week on the free version of the show, we're going to be talking about the recent report that Australia has experienced the largest year-on-year income drop in the OECD and maybe why that is. We're going to be talking about Warren Buffett's partner, Charlie Munger, saying that we all need to be buying tech stocks, which is the reverse of what he and Warren have been saying for decades. And Tony's going to do a deep dive, a drill down or a pulled pork, as we call it, on CVL, CivMec, and tell us what he thinks about that as an investment. So that's coming up. Let's get into it. Welcome to QAV episode 646, 14th of November 2023. Tony, how did your bets go in the cup? <laughs> uh, they're still coming. Actually, I, I finished up backing the winner as a saver, but um, no, my tip was Vow and Declare, which looked like it was going to loom in the straight, but it's a very long straight at Flemington, so it didn't win. I think it ran about sixth or seventh. Ninth, actually. Ninth, was it? Okay. I'm being optimistic. And I know that. Because I'm running a cup day promotion for QAV members. <laughs> I meant to do it last week, didn't get time. <laughs> so it's a post cup day promotion for QAV club members who want to take advantage. They can upgrade from a monthly subscription to an annual subscription. They'll save an extra, I think it's 20% of their first year. But uh, in honor of your uh, tip last week. I said it's only valid for nine, the first nine people, <laughs> and it only runs for nine days. <laughs> it's uh, Tony's Cup Day tip promotion. Mm. There you go. So Good. go to the website and check that out. It underperformed like our portfolios. Well, I'm glad someone's going to make some money out of it. <laughs> <laughs> Speaking of making money, Australians are making money. Tony, according to the Financial Review, Australia records biggest income decline in the developed world. Economists have urged Treasurer Jim Chalmers to overhaul Australia's tax system after new data showed households suffered the largest fall in living standards of any advanced economy over the past year. Now, I can't figure this out because every other day I read how to, you know no one can afford to buy a house mm. because of real estate prices, including me. Mm-hmm. Uh, but we're also suffering from an income drop. So obviously not the people buying all the real estate and pushing the real estate prices up that are suffering from the income drop. Yeah, I mean, uh, the people really want to hear me bang on about the RBN again, but uh, this is, again, the left hand not knowing what the right hand's doing. So uh, somewhere in that article it talks about inflation and the RBA putting interest rates up, which, of course, affects people's, um, you know, take home or, or net I- income after they pay their mortgage. And then it talks about the $25 billion the government has given people to ease the cost of living crisis. 
what's that doing? It's putting in, pushing inflation up. What's the RBA doing? It's raising interest rates. It's like just such a... And then what's happening with the unions? They're going, well, we can't keep up on our current pay with all this. Give us a pay rise. So it's, it's, a, it's a stupid, stupidly run, vicious cycle. And, and I, I just can't keep highlighting the fact that someone's got to, you know, understand the mix between monetary and fiscal policy and get it right. There are some other things going on. I mean, there's, um, I think in the mix, there's also the fact that there was a big cash splash during COVID. And so that money's coming to an end. People put that and probably put it into savings and now they've spent that. So, you know, they're not, they can't rely on that anymore. Um, there's immigrations. I think this was the biggest immigration intake ever this year. Um, they're competing with people for rents and for house prices, so that's pushing things up as well. There's a flip side to immigration in that they're also um, entering the workforce, and that's been one of the problems that you know building companies, particular in particular, have been calling out that they can't you know get enough people to work for them to be able to, to keep up with. The supply of new housing, which is one of the reasons why house prices are going up as well. So there's a lot of things going on, but it, it, you know, like, come on, guys, it's 2023. The RBA has been saying for the last 40 friggin' years, we only have one thing to use to fight inflation it's interest rates. <laughs> and now we've got the treasurer going, it's a cost of living crisis. I'll give you some money back. It's <laughs> just, and now we're the worst performing country in the OECD. So well done. Well done, RBA. Well done, Treasurer. Grow up. You bl- you blame me the Labor Party? Or is it uh is it a multi-party problem here? Uh you know, as I said, I think part of it was the COVID splash as well. So I'm not picking on any one particular party. The Labor Party are more likely to give um cost of living relief as they have uh to to the lower uh, income brackets to help pay their energy bills, for example. So I get that, but but it's it ha- it's having an impact. It's having an impact across the economy. I just you know I, I can imagine if Paul Keating was here, what he'd be saying. <laughs> he is here. He is here, but he's keeping quiet because it's a Labor Party, I guess. But yeah, I think it's just a mess, <laughs> and someone's got to take charge. Uh, the other point I want to make is there will not be tax um, law changes in a first term government. There never is because. You know, you've got to win the second term election first. Then you can do something difficult. But it, um, if if history's any guide, that usually is, there'll be another cash splash before the next federal election, um, which will also impact the economy and put inflation up and hence interest rates up. And then the RBA put interest rates up, which will also impact the economy and push inflation up. <laughs> it's, just, it's just, come on, guys, get real. It's It's not hard. <laughs> Apparently, no one told Gough Whitlam you had to wait until your second term before you could do any difficult things. True, he he did them all before cabinet met. Correct. <laughs> but sat down with a pen and a pad and just did them all. At his well, true, week. but they weren't. I don't think there was any tax reform in that. They were, they were mainly social justice issues. Yeah, uh, yeah. So I'm just, I'm just, I'm in despair that that you know we the level of of uh, people um, running the economy and, and how they don't seem to sink. I guess they talk to each other, but come on, just, you know, it's, it's not hard. It's, you know, stop stop, stop putting interest rates up, RBA. Give us a break and stop with the cash splash, Mr. Treasurer, 
and let's just see what happens and things will settle down. Because I'm, I'm firmly in the camp that inflation is due to the COVID time period when we had supply chain disruptions and when we had um, a, a much higher price of oil. Uh, those things are, you know, they haven't completely settled down, but they're settling down. And the reason why we're number one uh, on the cost of living decrease in the OECD is because the other countries have let have you know we're seeing those those kinds of inflationary pressures flow through their economies. If you, there was also a table published, I think, in today's Fin Review, which talked about uh, the projected inflation um, expected in all the OECD countries, and again, I think we're pretty close to the highest because the other countries, just like we would if we did if we did li- less than what we're doing now, are, are letting the supply the supply chain issues fly through, flow through, and uh, um, haven't been um, as generous with the cash splash. Uh, perhaps the US has been with the Inflation Reduction Act, but the UK hasn't been, for example, and it's projected to have much lower inflation next year. We're projected to have the same. So, you know, under our current rules and operating policies, I don't expect to see interest rates dropping next next year. They'll be at best where they are now. And they are inflationary. It's it's they're part of the problem. We've got to get someone smarter than the people who run the show now who think that raising interest rates is going to bring down inflation. Um, it, it might, it might, but you know, it's like saying um, I'm going to saw off your leg so you don't so you don't get um, uh, infected. It's, it's like that the whole the whole policy behind raising interest rates and controlling inflation with that particular um, tool uh, is to try and keep us out of a recession. But Jesus, if the five years we you know we have to bear that for is worse than the recession, <laughs> why are we doing it? Why, why are we doing it when our living standards are going down 5%? Why do we keep doing this? So what are the reserve banks or the central banks in other countries doing differently? Like if I look at this chart of Real household gross disposable income per capita. Australia is at the bottom. It's dropped 5.1% over the last 12, well, the 12 months to June 2023, this is. The United States is up 3.5% over the same period. The United Kingdom is up 2.2%. France is up 1.6%. Any idea what they're doing, their central banks are doing differently? Because I know the US has been putting up interest rates as well. Yeah. What's what's Why is their income going up at the same time when ours isn't? I think it's probably going to be a case by case. So in the US, for example, if I look at that case, uh, their their local oil industries ratcheting up to to you know fully uh, fully being engaged again. So their shale oil industries keeping the price of oil lower in the, in the US. Um, most US people, I think, if not all US homeowners, are on a fixed rate mortgage. So when the central bank puts up interest rates in the US, it has a much lower and lower impact on the people who own real estate than it does here because we're all on fixed. And that's another issue for Australia too. Um, During COVID, a lot of people, I think it was like 50 or 60% of mortgage holders locked in rates at at 2% and they're all coming off that now. So that's another reason why um, the higher interest rates are biting hard on them. And, you know, that's another good, good indication. Is the RBA taking that into account? If every if, if like sixty percent, whatever the number is, if half the people who have mortgages this year are suddenly paying three times the interest rate they were paying last year, 
isn't that enough of an interest rate rise to slow the economy? Why are you putting interest rates up as well? So, you know, um, I would think in places like the UK and France, they haven't given as much back in the way of um, relief to to the general population. I don't know that for a fact, but I'm guessing that's the case. Um, and therefore, it's not this left-hand, right-hand argument where the central bank's putting up interest rates to slow the economy and the government's giving handouts to people to to pay for the cost of living and one's negating the other. Um, so, yeah, I think it's I think it's case by case. We had a lot of a lot of money given out during COVID. I think some of that's been banked and it's now being spent. So people are coming off that. We have the fix the fixed rate that's called the fixed rate cliff. I don't think it's as bad as that, but people are paying a lot more under variable rates for, for their mortgages. Um and uh yeah, there's been $25 billion, according to the Fin Review, given away to people to ease their cost of living burdens, which is kind of negating what the RBA is doing to, by raising interest rates. All right. Well, moving right along. <laughs> Charlie Munger, Tony, mm. says that we need to start buying tech stocks mm. like Apple and Alphabet or risk being left behind. That's our solution. Gosh. I feel left behind at the moment in the share market. Well, just got to buy Alphabet. I was like, Bl- <laughs> bloody hell, Charlie. We've been listening to you say <laughs> not buy these things. Yeah. And now you're saying we're going to get left behind. Like, you know, when you're 99, I guess you can just start making shit up. <laughs> um, it's, <laughs> it's the Magnificent Seven's world, and we're all just living in it, Charlie Munger says. A handful of mostly technology companies have grown so dominant and outperformed the stock market to such a great extent in recent years that investors who don't own any of them risk being left behind, Warren Buffett's business partner has said in two recent interviews. What everybody has learned is that everybody needs some significant participation in the 12 companies that do better than everybody else, Munger told the Acquired podcast. You need two or three of them at least. So, uh, I don't know, Tony. What what does that mean for us? Well, it's a it's a yeah interesting dilemma, isn't it? And that's it flows into the theme that we've seen. I've seen graphs in the last couple of months, which says that uh, you know the Australian index has been flat for many years, as we've spoken about, and the US index, if you take out those big Fang stocks or whatever they're called now, has been pretty much flat. So all the growth has come from those um, tech stocks. The question is, will it continue to come from those tech stocks? And and I'd rather punch myself in the face than pay 30 times earnings for Apple, <laughs> notwithstanding Charlie's a much smarter investor than I am. And um, and he makes a good point. Um, and I know that Buffett is prepared to pay up for quality. And Charlie made the point somewhere in that article that, you know, that, uh, that Berkshire bought Apple when it did in 2017 or 18, and it's up three times since then. So good on them. But, uh, it, yeah. And I've, I've also heard Charlie talk about um, Apple as still being a value investment because he thinks the future earnings are going to dwarf the current earnings. And so even at 30 times PE, it's worth buying. But um, it, it's a whole different mindset, I think. And, yeah, go ahead and do it if you want. Um but it's also looking at the looking at something which has done well for the last seven years or something and, and saying, will it continue to do well? And I'm not so sure. Well, the Magnificent Seven, apparently, are Apple, Microsoft, Alphabet, Amazon, Meta, Tesla, and NVIDIA. 
So if you go through all so, of those, um, mm. Alphabet seems to have, well, I'm going to say Alphabet doesn't seem to have a natural competitor, but I'm also going to contradict myself because if someone gets a good AI search engine going then and Alphabet doesn't, then that can come under threat. Um, Apple, I mean, I seems it like I like Apple. I, all my stuff is Apple and I pay up for it. But at some stage, people are going to stop paying more for the newest iPhone and just go, you know what? I'm gonna I'm gonna buy a cheaper Google version or whatever. That that day will come at some stage. Um Microsoft, I, I remember ten years ago or less than that when I was in Canada, um, Microsoft was the was being touted as the worst stock to buy um on the you know the Dow because you know it just had a bad run and it's kind of got its act together. Um what else? Tesla? I I seriously think Tesla could face some kind of threat um, when all of the other manufacturers get decent electronic uh, vehicles on the market and when China starts producing them cheaply, so in Japan, I guess too. So I I you know I think Teslas are wonderful cars, but again, I'm not going to pay nosebleed earnings for it. Um, yeah, so I think each of those stocks um, are, have been. Great stocks to have invested in, and if I had a TARDIS, I would go back and and buy them. But um, they're just so expensive now. I can't. Whenever things go wrong in the economy, whenever things go wrong with them or their industry, they fall. They're, they're highly volatile. They fall quite sharply. So, I'm not going to say Charlie's wrong. He's a smart guy. If you want to buy Apple, buy Apple. I just can't bring myself to do it. Well, I think the thing these seven companies have in common is that they're all very heavily invested in AI. That's the thing that's, you know, I think driving predominantly, certainly Microsoft's share price in the last year in particular. It's 50% stake or 49% stake, whatever it has, in OpenAI. Um, Google obviously has a big investment in AI. So does Meta. So does Tesla now. Elon just launched his AI Grok last week for limited uh, audiences. NVIDIA's producing the A100s and the H100s mm. that are driving AI, mm -hmm. the chipsets. Apple, you know, their, their play isn't obvious yet, but everyone assumes that they're going to be a big part of riding this into the future, not with their own major AI engine, that at least the devices that a lot of the AIs are running on. Um, Amazon as well, you know, AWS, the engine, the platform that a lot of these things are hosted on. So it's the big AI plays. And, um, yeah, right, I mean, Bill Gates came out and said recently, and I've heard other people like Mark Andreessen say this over the last few months, is that when, when the AI revolution hits, in the like uh, mainstream in the next year or two, no one's ever going to go to Google again. He said, No one, Bill Gates said last week, no one's ever going to Google again. No, you never, no one's ever going to Amazon again. Cause you'll just say to your AI assistant, Book me a flight, buy me a book, do this, whatever, and it'll go out and find you the best deal, the best price, and book it for you and organize it for you. But all these companies, Amazon and Google, et cetera, have got their own AI mm. plays, which 
they figure we'll pick up the slack for the lost revenue and those sorts of things. But, um, but it, yeah, we don't have any major AI plays. I mean, Canva's adding AI to their stuff, and I'm sure Atlassian will have an AI component to what they do. But we don't have any major AI pure plays in Australia to get involved in. But again, Cam, I know AI is your thing, but but how do I predict <laughs> the cash flows going forward? How do I discount them back? NVIDIA, I just looked up now, is trading on a PE of 116 times. The, yeah, the, well, I said- the, They're priced for perfection, and we don't even know if AI is going to make a buck of income for them yet. I was um Haven't we seen this before? To, yeah. Oh, I mean, I'm talking to a couple of people this week about Microsoft's, I think it's Sam Atino on Futuristic, we were talking about this. I was like, I, like I'm not even confident that OpenAI won't end up the net the Netscape of AI. Yeah, absolutely. You know, it's got a massive early lead. It's yeah. dominating everything right now, but I've seen this before. I, I saw it with Netscape. I, you know, and I think the biggest death threat to open AI is that Microsoft buys all of it and takes it inside and internalizes it because that's never Ooh. a good thing. I mean, Satya Nadella, the CEO of Microsoft, seems to be doing a good job with the company, better than Barber did. But, um, you know, these big organizations and their political fiefdoms and everything that goes on tend to swallow these things up and suck the juice out of them for a while. Yeah, China's Alibaba just upgraded their latest AI last week. Um, You know, China's AI plays have not really hit the mainstream Western attention yet, but I expect big things to come out of China, building their own chipsets to rival NVIDIA as well. I mean, once that hits, the impact that'll have on open AI and you know, Google's Bard gets up to speed and Meta's plays get up to speed, Lambda, mm-hmm. et cetera. But- so, yeah, look, at the great Tesla's play, there's going to be a, you know, I don't think open AI has got a moat is actually what I said that's mm-hmm. worth much, you know. Well, and that's the, but that's also the way that these things develop, Cameron. You've named half a dozen companies there with their own version of AI. They can't all succeed. I mean, Amazon sells, you know, sold books, and and Barnes and Noble sold books, and then eventually Amazon sold books, and that was it. You know, um, Microsoft had a search engine. There were three or four search engines, but now there's only Google. These these developments tend to land with into the future with one or two companies that go forward. So mm-hmm. um, betting on them all may not be the right thing to do. And picking which ones it's going to be is also very hard to do. So paying a premium, and I'm not just talking a premium, 116 times earning earnings for a, a chip maker, um, mm. just, it, again, it just sounds like the tech bubble all over again, what we were seeing back then in 2000. The big difference is Charlie and Warren have always told us to steer clear of them, and now they're doubling down on it and saying you're an idiot if you don't get yeah. you know, two or three of them. Yeah, it's strange, isn't it? And I and I don't think Charlie. I'm halfway through the podcast that interviewed Charlie um, in that interview. He talks about Apple. He doesn't, and he comes at it from a business point of view rather than an AI point of view. And he, you know, he talks about their um, their sales, their ability to raise raise prices with each. You know, new new issue, the profit margin they have, all those kinds of traditional sort of in, industrial type company company metrics that they look at. He's not coming at it from any sort of um, world beating tech point point of view with Apple. But 
Yeah, well, Apple doesn't have a pure AI play yet, mm-hmm. so you couldn't anyway. Yeah, it's interesting. Well, I was hoping you would be able to put my mind at rest there, Tony, but um, look, uh, no, you've left me wanting. Um, and I've heard other interviews with Charlie and Warren, and they've talked about how they missed the boat on some of these companies, and, and Charlie was saying that we should have bought Alphabet years ago because they can manufacture an, an ad for a cent and they can charge a dollar when it appears. So that's the kind of business that they like. So I get why he's doing it. Um, I guess, you know, to to take that kind of argument further, it's it's a kind of stock that they'd probably buy in a downturn when there was a recession going on and there was blood on the streets. You know, that's the kind of time you want to buy those companies. But just paying these kind of nosebleed prices for them, I, I don't think that's safe. <laughs> Okay, so that's all I've got on my talking points for this week. Tony, what have you got? The pulled pork, uh, which was a request, and this is on a company called Civmec, C-V-L. So thanks for the for the request. It's an um, interesting company. I, I quite like it. However, it's a very small company. Sorry, it's a, it's a company with a very small ADT of only $13,000 on average, so it won't suit people like myself and other people like me out there. Uh, but it's a good company. And the reason why I thought I'd, I would do the pulled pork on it is it is possible that the ADT may improve next year. So people might want to hear about it now and think about investing next year if they if they like the company. And the reason for that is this company originally listed on the Singapore Exchange uh, back in 2012. It actually started up in 2009. I should say it's it's a construction and engineering company. Um, it does work across all different sectors, uh, energy, resources, marine, defense, infrastructure, and it does construction and build and maintenance work um, as engineering companies do. Uh, but they listed for some reason on the Singapore Exchange in 2012 and then uh, in 2018 took up a dual listing on the ASX. So um, dual listed. And if you look at the the um, shareholder information in Stock Doctor, there's a large, almost half of the the uh, shares are listed as being owned by the Chess Depository Nominees Company, which I think is uh, people from Singapore co-investing in Australia. Um, so if the company does go ahead and their their plan comes to fruition, which is uh, what they what they're doing is to repatriate repatriate to Australia. Uh, then we may see that uh, we have all the shares on one exchange and there may be a better um, uh, float available uh, to, uh, to to buy and sell in the share market. The other reason why there's a low ADT on this stock, which is probably a good thing, is that there are two large owners um, who are both uh, one CEO and one's chairman, and they have something like 40% of the shares themselves. So between Singapore investors and the owners is like 90% of the stock is is accounted for and so it's only the the rump that's trading every day and so we have a low a low ADT. The other reason for repatriating to Australia the, the company's called out is because they're doing more and more work for the navy and and defense work and the government's getting tighter and tighter on um uh, on their rules about local sourcing. So the government wants to buy Australian um, and this company's head offices are currently in Singapore, even though they do all their work in Australia, their their staff are in Australia. It's basically an Australian company in everything but name. 
Um, so they'll take steps to come back, which should help. Uh, what else can I say about it? It's um, the, I guess the value prop for this company. Why is it different to other engineering companies? And by the by, Civ Mech probably stands for civil and mechanical, which are two types of engineering. Civil is, if anyone went through an Australian university when I did, the engineers were all debating whether civil was better than mechanical, which is better than electrical, which is better than chemical. There's like four four types of engineering you could do this. So civil is, is um, engineering which builds bridges and roads and buildings, and mechanical is t- the type of engineering that, that builds big <clears throat> tractors and trains and mechanical type uh, engineering. So CivMech is the name. I guess that's where it came from. Um, but their value prop, which I found interesting, is they have a really big uh, facility over in WA, just south of Perth, and they have another one in Newcastle, which isn't quite as big, and a smaller one again in in Gladstone, which are all kind of you know, areas around resources and natural gas, so they're kind of good places for engineering companies to be. But the, the value prop for this company is its big facility in WA, which enables it to do a lot of pre-build constructing in a, in a large hangar-like warehouse. And so that's that's um, there's some benefit in that. So rather than, say, building a bridge on site, they can build large portions of the bridge undercover. They won't be affected by weather during construction and then truck it out to the site and put it in place in a prefab-type format. Um, and that's um, that saves them lost days for for being able to work in all types of, um, of weather. Uh, it also, um, I think, is is cheaper um, to, to build in the one facility and keep that running um, full bore. Uh, and they also have some other, um, they do their painting on site, which I think is is, um, is advantageous as well. So that's their value prop. They can build things like, you know, the dumpsters for large mining trucks can be built in that hangar, um, again, which is a, a bit of differentiation from other people that produce that. So anyway, so that's the company in a nutshell. Looking at the numbers, uh, share price I did the analysis at is a dollar. There's no consensus target, which is not surprising because, you know, with such a low ADT, no stockbroker is going to worry about researching this company. Dividend yield is 5%, which doesn't meet our hurdle, but it's pretty good. Uh, Stock Doctor Financial Health is strong and steady, also good. It trades on prop cap of 5.3 times, uh, also good. Net equity per share is 83 cents, which is below the stock price. But if you look at book plus 30%, which is a dollar eight, it's um, we're buying it cheaper than uh, book plus 30, which gives it a tick on our on our checklist. We don't have any forecast earnings growth, so I can't do any um, checking for that. Directors hold 41% according to Stock Doctor, so that's um, a big tick there. P is 8.6 times, which is not the highest or lowest, so we can't score it on that, but it's it's still pretty low. Equity's been going up consistently, which I like, so that's a tick there. So all in all, the quality uh, score for this company is, is 10 out of 11 because some of those things like um, owner-founders or, or directors holding a large amount is um, are scoring a 2. So it's 10, uh, 10 out of 11 or 91%. And the QAV score is 0.17. So except for that low ADT, I think it's a great investment. And if they can change that next year and free up uh, some of that float, then it will come onto our um, radar screens. Uh, Pros and cons. Um, One thing I liked about it is the dividend payout ratio is only 45%. 
but they're able to trade at a yield of 5% with their dividend. So that's that's pretty low. And um, if they need to play around with that, they can to get the yield up. Uh, the other thing which I like about this company is that more and more of the business is coming from maintenance, which means it's recurring. Because typically they're signing three-year or five-year maintenance contracts. And so that's good. Um, also, too, the last figures, uh, NPAT and sales were both up. I'm just trying to find the numbers here. Uh, up 7% um, year on year. So that's good. And their order book is up 17 or 18% year on year. So they've got an order book of $1.1 billion worth of work. So from that point of view, the business metrics are very attractive. Um, and the only only con I can see um, holding against this company is the lower ADT, which may change. So all in all, I think it's a, it's worth, a, worth having a look at and perhaps having a look at next year if they can solve the ADT issue by repatriating back to Australia. You missed the most important kind of engineering in your breakdown of engineering, Tony, prompt engineering. I've never heard of prompt engineering. It wasn't taught at university back in the 80s. No, that's an AI thing, Tony. Is it? Prompt engineers. Companies are paying hundreds of thousands of dollars in salaries for prompt engineers, people who know how to write a good prompt for an AI. Prompt engineering. Well, you must qualify for that job then. I, I if I wasn't completely unhirable at this age, <laughs> uh, yes, I spent a lot of time on prompt engineering. Well, give the job to Hunter or Taylor, and you tell them the prompts uh, to use. Yeah, like I, you know, Taylor's less horrible than I am. They both my boys are less horrible than I am. Oh, come on, almost. I haven't mm. haven't heard from Taylor for a while. What's he up to? Oh, killing it, man. Good, killing good it. on him. Yeah, he's crushing it. He's doing well. Um, all right. Well, thank you. That was a request from Jackie. So I hope you like that, Jackie. And that's the end of the free episode of QAV for this week. If you're a new listener, I just should let you know how this works. So we have a free episode every week. runs for about half an hour. We have a premium episode also every week. It goes for another 30 to 60 minutes, depending on how many questions we get. It's where... Tony answers questions from our club members. If you want to check out the premium episodes and all the other benefits of being a QAV club member, which is access to the checklist and and the Bible and uh, the private Facebook groups and the other comms channels that we have, invites to the dinners, Zoom calls, etc., etc., sign up for the two-week free trial and check out all that stuff out. You can do that at qavpodcast.com.au. Look for the... Um, free trial button there and if you like the idea of value investing qav style but don't feel like you have the time or resources to learn how to do qav for yourself think about signing up for qav Lite. that's our relatively new service where we send you the stock tips every week and then we also monitor those stocks in a portfolio and if they become a sell we email our QAV Lite members and tell them that it's time to sell that stock and what to replace it with. Check that out too. It's sort of a low effort way of doing QAV. Still better if you know how to do it yourself, I think, because Tony could get hit by a bus and then where are you? But while he's not, we can do this. So check that out, qavpodcast.com.au slash light, L-I-G-H-T. If you don't want to sign up to any of those, just keep listening to the free episode. And if you have any questions, shoot me an email. You'll find that on our website too. All right, have a great week and good luck with your investing. Shall you put it?
The QAV podcast is a production of Spacecraft Publishing Proprietary Limited, authorised representative of AFS cell 520442, AFS representative number 00129217182. Please don't make any investment decisions based solely on listening to this podcast. This is presented as general advice only, not personal financial advice. We don't know your personal financial circumstances. Please see a financial planner before making any investing decisions.